Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. So we're going to be spending some more time with Jeremiah the prophet over the course of the next six weeks. And it's been said of Jeremiah that he was a bullfrog, was a good friend of mine, you know the rest, never understood a single word he said, but I helped him drink his wine, and he always had some mighty fine wine. It's from the song Joy to the World, not the Christmas Carol, obviously, but the hit by Three Dog Night that I don't know much about, except that it was part of the soundtrack to the big chill that my parents had on audio cassette and I grew up listening to, along with Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale and all the other great songs on that soundtrack. But I always thought it was hilarious. It was a funny line. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. So ever since we developed this 12-year plan of approaching the scripture, I knew that when we got to Jeremiah, I was at least just going to have to say that out loud just to get it out of my system. So that's a freebie. You're welcome. But at the same time, I don't know that they're exegeting Jeremiah the prophet in that song. That verse and the chorus are interesting to think about because Jeremiah is a book that leads to anything but joy to the world, joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, or to you and me. At least at first glance, this is a hard-to-get happy sort of book as we've already talked about interacting with it a little bit over the last few weeks. And it's frequently been seen as a companion to the book of Lamentations, a book whose title literally means to weep uncontrollably in great grief and loss. Both books come from this moment when Israel as a nation not only ceases to exist, but is completely devastated by a vast empire. And Jeremiah, as we said, is the prophet of no return. He's the prophet who says it's happening and there's no way to stop it. And he actually has to live through it. So he's not just throwing rocks at what other people are going to experience. He is on the receiving end of the disaster that he announces. But at the same time, there is joy and there is hope to be found in this book. So I've titled this series Tale of Tears because it is Jeremiah's own story and the story he tells of Israel, the way he understands the story that is unfolding for God's people is one that is heavy with tears. And I have to be honest, I, I, I struggle at times because in my capacity, my job, my calling, what I want to do each and every Sunday and each and every time that I interact with anyone that God has entrusted into my ministry is to bring joy and hope. I want to be able to encourage and to offer hope. But so much of the scripture speaks candidly and honestly and at times 
like in books like Jeremiah, bleakly about the realities of grief and pain that we experience. And I don't like standing up here and talking about stuff that's a bummer. I want to just say joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, joy to you and me, go in peace. But Jeremiah doesn't make it that simple, and I kind of think that's why the song includes the line, I never understood a single word he said. Jeremiah in his own time was misunderstood. That comes out loud and clear. We're going to see that this morning. But there is hope and there is joy, but it comes from dealing honestly with what we experience of pain and grief. And so the question that I want to ask us this morning, I want to invite us to consider and wrestle with is why do we cry so much? Why is it that there are so many tears that we shed? Or that we feel we ought to shed and we try not to? Why is it that grief and pain are so real in our lives? And where do we go with it? What do we do with it? I want to suggest that most of the grief and the pain that we experience comes out of a context of relationships. We have two flowers on the organ representing losses. Many of us were at the service for Larry Bartels yesterday, passed a week ago, and we've also heard that Gene Aarons has passed away. Those are relationships that are lost. Whenever I stand at a graveside, whenever I am part of a funeral, there is an acknowledgement. What we're doing is we're saying this person had an impact that was profound and significant, and their absence now leaves a hole that nothing will fill exactly. We grieve that and we lament, even as we celebrate the blessing that the person was. In relationships that we currently have, where the people are still around, though we also know that there is pain and grief associated with that. We disappoint one another. We hurt one another. We have conflicts with one another. Whether it's members of our household, members of our congregation, members of our extended family, co-workers, friends, relationships are fraught with occasions for grief and pain. And if scripture is anything, it is a testimony to the relationship that God desires to have and has with us. And so it should come as no surprise that there's a lot of grief and pain in the pages of Scripture. Because everything we experience in our human relationships is an, is an example of things that take place in our relationship with God. And so there's two things that I want to talk about this morning from the passages in Jeremiah that we're going to look at. In answering that question, why do we cry so much? And the first is this, we cry because we are made in the image of God and God cries. We are made in the image of God and God cries. And so one of the things that Jeremiah brings to light is God's posture towards us in the midst of our relational dysfunction with God. And so we're going to look at what is it that God does? How does God engage in this relationship where there is real pain and grief? And then the other is our response. Our response to God, our response to grief and pain can either mimic God's, which leads to healing and hope, or it can double down and compound the occasions for grief, which just leaves us with more tears to cry. God's 
engagement with our grief and pain and our response. Those are the two things that I want to look at. And so we're going to begin in Jeremiah 26. You may have noticed as we have interacted with Jeremiah that we are not moving through this book in uh, chapter order. (laughs) We started in chapter 31, then chapter 1, now we're in chapter 26. We're going to go back to chapter 25 later in the message. Um, I have not lost my mind, nor have I lost my highly developed sense of OCD that likes to do things in order. It's just that Jeremiah doesn't cooperate with the way I would do things. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about how this book came to be, um, because it's one of the few books of Scripture that actually tells us a great deal about how it came to be. And how it didn't come to be is Jeremiah didn't sit down and start writing with verse 1 of chapter 1 and go all the way to chapter 52. That's not how this works. So what we have, and if you were in uh, the class with Dave this morning, you heard a little bit about this, the first 25 chapters are are a single collection that's meant to stand as a unit. And so we're starting at the beginning of the second large portion of the book. And so this is actually the beginning of the book of Jeremiah in some ways. And it begins in verse 1 of chapter 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from Yahweh. This is the first passage in the book of Jeremiah that has a date attached to it, and it's the earliest date. And what's interesting about that is it comes 20 years into Jeremiah's ministry. In other words, Jeremiah was bringing the word of God to the people of Judah for 20 years before he started writing anything down. And that's going to have significance for us later on. But this is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, stand in the court of Yahweh's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of Yahweh all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. Jeremiah, who is a priest, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is told by God to stand in the gate, one of the gates of the temple, As people are coming up for a festival, this could be Passover, more likely it's the Feast of Tabernacles when people would come to Jerusalem for a week, and all of the nation, it's one of the three occasions when all the nation is supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship. In other words, Jeremiah has a large and captive audience, and he's standing in this public space in the gate, and God says, you tell them everything I tell you, don't leave anything out. And this is in the first year of Josiah's son. Josiah was the king who reigned for 30 years and led a great reform, specifically centered on the temple to clear out idols, to recover the word of God for God's people, and to bring them back into patterns of justice and righteousness and true worship and an experience of the presence of God. But Josiah was tragically killed when he foolishly meddled in the international affairs of the day picking a fight with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he didn't need to be involved in, and he's killed. His son takes the throne, but Egypt is so upset over their meddling that Pharaoh removes that king after only three months and puts Jehoiakim on the throne, this king. And so this is at a razor's edge moment for Judah that Jeremiah speaks this word. Will Jehoiakim follow in the footsteps of his father and continue to reform the nation and lead them back to God? Or will Jehoiakim turn a deaf ear to the prophetic voice? The nation is at a moment of decision. Babylon is on the rise. Assyria and Egypt are in retreat. Judah will have to reckon with that. How will it go for them? 
It is a critical moment in the country's history. And God says to Jeremiah, go and speak to the entire nation at this moment of crisis, at this moment of decision, and don't hold anything back. Verse 3 gives us the content of this message. It may be, it may be, they will listen. And everyone turn from their evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says Yahweh, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened. There are two things in those brief verses that reveal the posture of God towards us. Before I go any further, I just want to say this. Those three verses are a condensed version, most likely, of a sermon that Jeremiah gave that is recorded in chapter 7 of the book. And I encourage you this week to go read the first 15 verses or so of chapter 7 that expand on what Jeremiah said in the temple on this occasion because it gets at a lot of the things that Jeremiah is calling the people to account for, things that Josiah had tried to reform. But here we just have this brief summary of what it is that God is attempting to do, the way that God is approaching the people. And the first is this, urgent or persistent words. In chapter 7 and also in chapter 25 that we're going to look at in a little bit, And in the rest of the book, there is this repeated statement that God has persistently, or here it's translated urgently, spoken to the people. I said to the kids earlier that God gets up early. The word that is being translated urgent or persistent, when it's used in a story, it's always they rose early in the morning to go be about whatever it is they needed to be about, whether it was traveling or working or whatever it was. They got up early to get after it. I love that. I love this idea that God is not slack in trying to bring about our redemption and salvation. God is not lethargic. God does not procrastinate. God is a go-getter when it comes to redeeming God's people. God has gotten up early, morning after morning after morning, so that mercy and love would be fresh and new for the people over and over and over again. And so we translate this persistent and urgent, but I just love that visual. God is getting up early, day after day after day, to save us. And why? 2 Chronicles 36, 15 is one of the other places where this phrase is used. Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently early in the morning, day after day, to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. It is easy to read the word urgent and persistent and feel that God is hounding or berating or getting after people in a hostile fashion. Far from it. God's urgent and persistent communication is not with the end goal of bringing about condemnation and judgment and disaster. It is because of his great compassion. It is because disaster is impending and God would avert it. God is warning them urgently. 
Disaster is coming. We see that word, and this is the second aspect of God's posture. God's words are to warn away from calamity and evil. And so in these few verses, you heard evil way and evil deeds, but you also heard disaster. It's the same word in Hebrew. We often translate it evil or wicked, and I I really increasingly feel like that's probably not the best idea because evil carries with it this moral dimension. Whereas the word bad does not necessarily have a moral dimension. It's just a bad thing. I drop my burrito on the ground, that's bad. It's not evil, but it is a disaster of sorts because now I have no burrito. And I grieve and go through all five stages right then. (laughs) But it's not evil, it's just bad. And it's interesting that this word is used in, if you go and read the book of Jonah, you see the same dimension. God says to Jonah that the badness of the Ninevites has come up before him, and it's ambiguous. Is it their destructive patterns of life, or is it the disaster that is coming to them that has come up before God. And of course, I think Jonah wants to see all of their bad behavior that will then bring about judgment. Jonah's not a good prophet because that's not what God is concerned about. God is concerned that disaster, that bad things are going to come to the Ninevites because of their bad behavior, certainly, but God would avert it. Therefore, God sends the prophet. And Jonah's a knucklehead that thinks that God just wants to go tell them gleefully that they're about to be destroyed, and then he wants to have a ringside seat and watch it. I've thought a lot about the differences between Jonah and Jeremiah as I've gotten into this book, and their postures couldn't be more different. Jonah wanted a ringside seat to see the destruction that would be wrought on what he considered bad people. And the final word of the book of Jonah, of course, is, shall I not have compassion on these people? Jeremiah was compelled to have a ringside seat to disaster that God desperately wanted to avert. And so God is a God who relents from disaster. We heard this word. It may be that they'll listen. It may be that they will listen and they'll turn from there. And I would suggest that we read their disastrous ways and their disastrous deeds so that I may relent concerning the disaster that is coming. The word relent here is the word repent. I think translators choose relent over repent because the idea of God repenting strikes us as odd. Well, God doesn't repent. The problem with that is that the Bible says he does. And as people who are committed to the God of Scripture, I think we need to come face to face with that. God repents constantly. In fact, God says that he is a God who is quick to repent concerning disaster. God is the kind of God who is quick to step in and avert disaster. The verses that say that God is not a human, that God would change his mind, those all relate to his ironclad will to do good to creation. God will never repent of desiring to do good to us, but is quick to repent whenever disaster is on the horizon. If we would just listen to the early in the morning, day after day, persistent and urgent (laughs) warnings that he gives 
rooted in his compassion. There was a mom walking into the foyer this morning with their children in tow, and I overheard them say to them, you're not listening to my words right now. And I told them, I said, you just preached the whole sermon in that sentence. (laughs) That's God. You're not listening to my words right now. My words that are to bring life and hope and healing to you, not disaster. Our God is a God who is urgently and persistently speaking so that disaster might not come, so that God's good purposes for us will stand. The question then is, well, what did the people do? Jeremiah stands in the temple, and what did they do? What did they hear? What did they respond with? We're going to put a pin in that and come back to explore their full response in a few minutes. Suffice it to say, they did not listen to his words that day. And so three or four years later, we come to chapter 25. Remember, I told you these are completely out of order. Chapter 25 ends the first major part of the book, and it's three years later, and the people and the king have not listened to Jeremiah. And so in the first seven verses of chapter 25, the word comes to Jeremiah again concerning all the people of Judah. And in verse 3, we read that for 23 years... The word of Yahweh has come to me, Jeremiah speaking, and I have spoken persistently. Jeremiah, imitating the pattern of his God, has gotten up early, day after day, day after day, to speak. But you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. You're not even turning in the direction of the voice, in other words. Although Yahweh persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from their disastrous way and disastrous deeds and dwell upon the land that Yahweh has given to you and your fathers of old and forever. And then Jeremiah says what we read about earlier in Jeremiah 10, that these false, fake gods, these so-called gods, are the weight around the people's neck that is preventing them. So he says, don't go after other gods to serve and worship them or to provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares Yahweh, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Like I said, I don't like talking about bummers on Sunday morning. But this phrase has to be reckoned with, provoked to anger. God says multiple times throughout Jeremiah, but especially here in chapter 25, you have provoked me to anger with the works of your hands, literally the carvings and the craftings of these false images that you imagine can save you. And in trusting in them, you are trusting in a lifeboat with no bottom. And I would not have you drown. And so he says, if you would turn from them, I will not harm you but you are trusting in them to your own harm. And so he says, I am provoked to anger. We have talked about the anger of God before when we were reading Jeremiah's predecessor, Isaiah, and this idea of the anger of God comes out, and it comes out in the prophets, and it comes out in Jeremiah especially harshly. A couple of weeks ago, the passage that we were looking at, Jeremiah dropped the S word, stupid. We heard it again in Jeremiah 10, and we're like, God, how can you call people stupid? Like, we're not supposed to do that. God says, you've provoked me to anger. What do we do with that? 
I want to suggest that there's two basic approaches to dealing with this. One is to imagine that God's umbrella posture towards humanity is one of anger. And that somehow or another, God is persuaded not to vent that anger on some of us. The other, and I think more faithful understanding of God, is that God's umbrella posture towards humanity is one of love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, and kindness. Now you have to try to fit this anger into that. And as I've given that some thought, when we were in Isaiah, I talked about anger being one of the stages of grief. That when we are grieved over a loss, think about the things I asked us, what makes us cry? Why do we cry so many tears? Anger is often a feature of that. But anger is rarely, and when it is this way, it is toxic and hardly virtuous. Anger never seeks to destroy the thing that we are grieving having lost. Follow me here. I am grieved that Larry is gone. And there might be emotions of anger that tinge our grief. In fact, mental health experts would tell us that to imagine that anger is never going to be part of the grief is just to deny what is universal to humanity. Anger is always somewhere in the grief one way or another. But to think that we are angry at Larry would be the most utter foolishness. We're angry over the fact that Larry is not with us. We might be angry at the dementia. We might be angry at a lot of things. We're not angry at Larry. The other thing with this provoked to anger notion is again, there's a, there's a translation question. This word pops up frequently in Scripture in particular places. Hannah, Samuel's mom, is said to be provoked to anger, except that's not how it's translated there. It says that she's vexed in her spirit. She goes before God and she's pouring out her heart to God and she says she is vexed in her spirit and you could say she's provoked to anger. She's been barren so long. She's the second wife in a toxic patriarchal ancient marriage situation where children are the way you gain favor and she hasn't had any and she's pouring all of this out to God. She's vexed. Job is said to be provoked to anger, except it's the same thing. He's said to be vexed over his circumstances. I think a better way of understanding this provoked to anger is that God is vexed. It's a great word, isn't it? It's the excuse to be able to say vexed. He's perplexed. He's confounded. And when we get perplexed and vexed and confounded by things, we often speak in ways that express our heart but that we would never want to be taken literally. We would never want to be understood as absolute statements. And most of the time, we would not want to be held accountable for them later. And I want to suggest that much of what God says, particularly through Jeremiah, falls in this category. We are not reading a systematic theology. We are reading a diary is the better way to understand the book of Jeremiah, I believe. Because God says things like, I will be angry with you forever. Well, that's not true in an absolute theological sense, or we are all doomed. 
God is speaking out of a depth of emotion, a vexation over the loss of our relationship that is leading to our destruction and disaster. In the temple sermon in chapter 7, which again, I encourage you to go back and read, this is where this phrase comes up, and I think it's instructive. God says through Jeremiah, is it I whom they provoke, declares Yahweh? Is it not themselves to their own shame? You see, God shifts the focus here. I will do them no harm. They are engaged in these things to their own harm. It is not I that is provoked. They are vexing themselves to their own shame. So returning to chapter 25, the rest of the chapter, which I will not read, this is now three years later after this temple sermon, and they have not listened to God's words. And this is where, again, I, the Three Dog Night song comes to bear He always had some mighty fine wine. And here Jeremiah is given a cup of wine to give to all the nations to drink. It is the cup of disaster. It is the cup of calamity in chapter 25, 8 through 38. And God says through Jeremiah, because they have not listened, because they refuse to turn away from things that lead to their own harm, that lead to their own disaster, because they will not turn from their disastrous ways, Nebuchadnezzar who just came to the throne when Jeremiah says this in chapter 25. This is a key moment in the book of Jeremiah. Much of what is in the book of Jeremiah comes from this moment. Nebuchadnezzar, new on the throne of Babylon, engaged in a massive campaign to expand the empire, and Judah's going to get swallowed up by that. And God says, I'm sending for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he's going to come, and he's going to destroy this nation and this city There's a finality. The may in chapter 26, they may listen and avoid the disaster. This has now become will. They have not listened, and so the disaster will surely come. There's a certainty to it. There's an endurance to it. This is the first place where Jeremiah gives the 70-year figure. And 70 years isn't an exact figure. You can calculate the length of the exile a few different ways to make it fit. But 70 was the average lifespan of someone in the ancient world. Saying that something was going to last 70 years was as much as saying it's going to last forever. It's the equivalent of giving someone a 70-year prison sentence. You may as well sentence them to life. It's the same thing. You're never going to see the light of day. There's a finality to it. There's a permanence to it. But then what's interesting is there's a universality to it because it's not just Judah. Jeremiah's uh, contemporary, I couldn't think of the word, sorry. Jeremiah's contemporary, Habakkuk, asked this question. He looks around at all that's vexing Jeremiah and all that's vexing God, and incidentally, it's important we remember Jeremiah's not alone as a prophet. There are others at this time. Habakkuk says, God, what are you going to do about it? Injustice reigns, false gods are misleading the people into disastrous ways. What are you going to do about it? And God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to put an end to it. And Habakkuk kind of does a, I'm sorry, what? Because the Babylonians are doing all the same things, only like ramped up to level 10, that I'm vexed about with Judah, and the things that Judah's doing are the things Babylon will do in order to judge, like they're going to wreak untold violence against massive amounts of innocent people. And Harm, like, how does that solve anything? 
And Habakkuk, like Job, like Jeremiah, and like most of us, doesn't get an answer to that question. And it's interesting to me, if you read verses 8 through 38 of Jeremiah 25, which again comes at the end of a major work of writing that's put together. In other words, this is the end of a particular book. It just ends with this bleak picture of the land being laid waste and devastated. I think part of what God is saying and what Jeremiah is saying is if the cycle of violence and injustice is just allowed to continue, redemption will never come. You cannot appeal to the kinds of things that have enslaved you to save you. To imagine that Babylon coming and conquering the kingdom is somehow going to solve the problem will not do. And God says, I'm going to judge the Babylonians. They're going to embrace disaster because they're doing all the same things you've done. And their disaster will look a lot like your disaster. Someone's going to conquer them, and that's not going to solve the problem either. And on and on and on it has gone for 2,500 years since. Judgment doesn't solve the problem. And so God is vexed. Jeremiah 15, 6 says this. This is one of those verses that we have to deal with. You have rejected me, declares Yahweh. You keep going backward, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. This is one of those moments where it's important that we remember what we are reading. Is God human that God can actually grow weary? Or is this like Job told his friends, the words of one who is vexed in spirit, the words should not be held onto. We should not teach a theology from this verse that somehow God can ever get tired of showing mercy. God is vexed. And so judgment is final. There's a finality to judgment. And so now we have to return to chapter 26. What did the people do? Chapter 26, verse 6, is the last statement of Jeremiah's message in the temple. If they don't listen, then this house will be like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Jeremiah goes into the temple of God, the temple that Josiah has cleansed and restored and reformed. And he says, if you do not start listening to God's word, this house will become like Shiloh. Shiloh was where Israel housed the Ark of the Covenant when they first came into the land until Samuel's day when the Philistines destroyed the shrine that was at Shiloh and captured the Ark. It's when Jeremiah says Shiloh, he should have issued a trigger warning, but then they wouldn't have listened to him. They hear this. You're comparing this house with Shiloh. Their response in the next verse is you must die. Now, that sounds like a bit of an overreaction. I trust that when I said Shiloh just now, nobody thought, you know what we need to do is take Pastor out into the parking lot and have a way with him. But that's exactly their response. The priests and the prophets in the temple, say, you must die. And they drag Jeremiah into an emergency session of the royal officials in the temple gate. And their message is simple. He's saying the temple is going to be destroyed. They don't talk about that it was a warning that it might be if we don't listen. And they say, he's comparing it to Shiloh. He must die. 
Jeremiah, when he offers his defense or is given a chance to offer his defense, does not offer a defense. He just repeats the sermon. Incidentally, this is something for us to think about. Our job is not to defend ourselves or the message. God is capable of preserving the message and the word and the messenger. And this is a pattern that is repeated over and over again. When messengers of God are brought up on charges before the powers and principalities of this age, they waste no breath defending themselves. They simply take the opportunity to say it again. And so Jeremiah repeats it in the hearing of everyone. And the officials and the people seem inclined to listen. In fact, they say, hey, wait a minute. We remember about 100 years ago, a prophet named Micah came, and he said some similar things about this house, that it would be destroyed if we didn't, you know, get our act together. And Hezekiah, the king at the time, listened and repented and engaged in reforms. And guess what? The temple's still here. So Micah was right. We should maybe listen to this guy. And the priests and prophets are having none of it, and they want to kill him. And then the chapter ends by telling the story of Uriah. Not that Uriah, a different Uriah. A Uriah who was also a prophet in Jeremiah's time and was saying similar things. And Jehoiakim, this king, was so mad about the things that he was saying that the prophet fled to Egypt for safety. And Jehoiakim sent a hit squad down to Egypt. And they killed him. And the question for us is, will we be like Hezekiah? Because the message is not to those outside the people of God. Jeremiah is not speaking to the culture. Jeremiah is not speaking to the world. The message is for all the nations, don't get me wrong, but he's in the temple speaking to people who are coming to worship Yahweh, and he's telling them, this house is going to be destroyed if you do not start listening. Hear this very clearly. A central aspect of any festival gathering of the people of Israel was the reading of the word. And Jeremiah is saying to them, you are coming and you are hearing the word, but you are not listening. And here is the problem, and this is where we need to be very close attention. I said that Shiloh is the trigger that got them going. They had built a theology of the temple. They had said, this is the place, this temple in this city where God said his name would live forever. So this temple can never be destroyed. We need to never worry that this temple could ever suffer that fate. It just can't happen. God said so. They've got proof texts and they've built a theology that is unassailable. And so when a prophet comes along and says to them, you have abandoned the ways of righteousness. You have distanced yourselves from the God who inhabits this place, and disaster will come. They literally cannot hear it. Their theology has made them blind and deaf. Jeremiah's temple sermon shows up in the Gospels, three of them, when Jesus stands in the temple and says very similar things. And he says, you've made my house a den of robbers. You've constructed something that bears the name of God and you've used it to protect injustice and unrighteousness. That's why they don't hear. That's why they don't listen. The question for us is, will we? Is it possible that we have constructed systems and institutions and ways of thinking 
that actually cause us not to be able to hear what God is saying. Now, here is where there is hope and joy. A lot of bummers in there, I know. But this is what occurred to me. At the moment that God says, you have not listened and now disaster is certain, that's the moment at which Jeremiah starts writing things down. I asked you to imagine relationships that you're in that may be sources of grief and pain. I want you to consider this. I want you to consider that at least in my experience, and I don't think this is odd, you know you're really in trouble in a relationship when the other person stops talking to you altogether. As long as they're yelling and screaming at you, as long as they're venting all of the pain and frustration in your direction verbally, you've got something to work with. It's when they shut down altogether and just will not engage that you know that it's probably past the point of saving. The people can shut up their ears, they can build their systems and their institutions and their theologies to block out and do everything to protect themselves from ever hearing the word of God accurately, but never make the mistake of thinking that that has God stop speaking. God continues to speak through Jeremiah for the next 20 years and writes it down. God never stops because God is the get up early in the morning, day after day after day after day, to speak persistently and urgently with compassion so that we will avoid the disasters that we create. And there is not a morning that God will wake up and say, not today. That is where hope lies, is that God is still speaking, and the only question for us is, will we listen? God, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that your words are life. We thank you that your words are compassion and mercy and love and that you have spoken them over us. God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying. We ask that whatever obstacles we have created, especially those that seem to bear the stamp of your name, we've been alerted today that it is entirely possible to be devoted to systems that bear your name to even read the texts that contain your words and still not be listening to you. Spirit, speak a fresh word to us today and give us ears to hear. It's because of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace. Peace.